This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. This episode is a first for me. It's the first time I've ever interviewed someone without knowing who they are. Because today's guest, Carolyn Hayes, is a best-selling novelist who has chosen to publish her new book under a pseudonym to protect her family's privacy. That book is one of the most powerful memoirs I've ever read. A Girlhood is a moving, compassionate, thought-provoking letter to Carolyn's transgender daughter, who was considered a boy at birth, but insisted she was a girl as soon as she could talk. This is a story of motherhood, authenticity, identity, and learning to be true to yourself. It's also a story about transphobia, a subject that's become a powder keg in recent years. And above all, it's a story about understanding and how other people can change us. We cannot control the world, but we can create a home that's safe and good and as happy as it can be. And the rest of it, you know, is always going to be, for all of our kids in different ways, is going to be dangerous and kind of a scary place. Carolyn joined me from her home on the East Coast of America to share the reality of being a parent supporting a trans child, the seismic impact of child protection turning up on your doorstep, and how the very real fear of losing custody led the family to move across America to a state where they hoped their youngest daughter would be accepted. I want to thank Carolyn for her candour, and I hope you'll find this conversation as eye-opening as I did. Before we talk a bit more about privacy and authenticity, perhaps we should just start, if you don't mind, if you can bear it, because I'm sure you've done a few interviews already, with just going right back to the beginning. And maybe if you can tell us a bit about what happened. Yeah. So, you know, my husband and I are, you know, having our fourth child. We're honestly like pretty confident that we've got it down. <laughs> Parenting in the best sense should always be humbling, right? <laughs> so, um, 
you know, we were like, okay, one more, what's one more? And then our uh, fourth child was a boy. We sent out boy announcements. Um, we have a daughter and two sons already. And then, you know, uh, as she grew up, it, I'm already changing pronouns. Um, and, you know, she really let us know that she was a girl, uh, that God got it wrong. Um, How did she do that? Uh, when I look back, you know, now I'm in the, a lot of communities with families, you know, of kids who were persistent, consistent and acute at a very young age. She did it consistently. <laughs> you know, she argued with her classmates at school when they called her a girl or when she had to get in the girl's bathroom line. She uh, she told her teachers she's not an arguer. That makes her sound really fierce. She's a very sweet, <laughs> gentle soul. But she was she let us know um, if she heard me talking uh, about her, you know, using male pronouns. Um, if she was in the other room, like I'm talking to my mother, I, she'd call out from the other room, you know, having heard me. Yeah. And all of her play was, was very girly. She'd play with trucks, um, but she'd be playing sisters or the trucks would have a headband on them. Or, oh. you know, at one point she had um, the Thomas, the train set, and she took the two bridge parts and taped them to her feet to make high heels. So this idea like, if you just give the boy the boy toys, he'll be a boy, you know? Um, you're like, well, I don't know, not necessarily. So, um, you know, with her language, uh, with, you know, um, her play, with her self-portraits, with, you know, everything in the way she talked about herself. And she was a very glamorous, you know, little kid. I mean, she's just so, <laughs> it came from another world. Um, and so we, at that point, you know, we talked to, some um, specialists. I'm, you know, I'm a writer. I'm a researcher. So we started to talk to people. You know, trying to get the best people in the country um, to give us advice and what to do. You know, and we were given a lot of different things. But eventually, you know, we just said, okay, well, here are the pronouns that you prefer, and here's a little nickname that everybody's using anyway, and here's a barrette. You know, <laughs> mm, you've made it sound so um, smooth and easy. I mean, how old was she when she started? Maybe three or yeah. four. Yes, becoming very insistent by that point. Yeah. I mean, how did that feel for you as a parent? She has two brothers and a sister, doesn't she? And, you know, so you kind of felt like you felt like you had it down. And then all of a sudden, this kind of like curveball comes at you. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I remember being very afraid, you know, you're very afraid because if you think, okay, what if this is, you know, really the rest of her life? And we knew one trans person, you know, in our entire circle. Um, so we didn't have very many models at that point. It was before Laverne Cox had been on the cover of Time magazine, you know, with the tipping mm -hmm. point. It was after Jazz Jennings had been interviewed by Barbara Walters, but she was like the only, you know, trans child we had as an, as an example. So there's not a ton of research and not a ton of stuff going on. So it was really, there was fear, you know, of course. And I really remember crying one day in the car as my husband's driving me to work and saying, I, I don't know how to prepare her for a world that is, is so mm -hmm. deranged kind of on this mm -hmm. topic. There's still, there's places where she could get stoned to death um, or yeah. just murdered in the streets for looking different in this way. And then there's other people who would think, oh, she's so progressive. She's so, you know, like she's the future. Yeah. It just felt like um, the world was going to take shape around her body in particular in ways that were so bizarre and had nothing to do with her, you know? So the thing is we had in, in our home, her transition was, was pretty healthy and good. Um, but what do you, if the child is fine, but except when they leave the home, then who, mm. who has the problem? You know, does my child have some, you know, I feel like it's, it's the culture that has the disordered thinking, right? Um, my child is fine and happy. It's just, 
in that way of moving out in the world. So I was very scared. You know, my husband had his own, you know, anxieties and fears around it and, you know, questioning his own, like, what are my, my masculinity, and like, which is all about us and, and not about her, but we had to go through it. Um, but really, um, you know, he said, we'll raise her the way we raised all of our other children, which is we cannot control the world, but we can create a home that's safe and good and as happy as it can be. And the rest of it, you know, is always going to be for all of our kids in different ways is going to be dangerous and kind of a scary place. And is that kind of how you've approached it? You've approached her the same as you've approached your other children? Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes people think parents who, you know, have a trans child must be, you know, these, you know, laissez-faire parents and let the child, well, do you let the child do anything they want ever and da-da-da. And you're like, no, actually, I'm a pretty strict parent. (laughs) Um, But when she told me, you know, um, mainly the thing was, when you say I'm beautiful, say she. And to me, also as a person of faith, big Catholic families. And when she said that, to me, she was speaking from a place of her divinity, of her soul. And I just felt like, wow, you do not mess with that conviction, how they want to be seen as beautiful. It is incredibly dangerous to mess with that. And so for me, it's been a journey in like investigating my own privilege, take shape around my body very differently. And, but also like this incredibly beautiful journey where again, we're looking at authenticity and somebody who had to fight to be authentic in the world. And then you kind of look at yourself and you say, am I, am I being authentic in the world? Mm. And it's very liberating. And for people who are scared of people who are self-expressing or bitter about people self-expressing, it can be a very troubling journey for them, I suppose. But for me, it was an incredible journey to be on with someone who had that conviction and is, is claiming you know, her space and then saying, hey, claim yours. It's so one of the things that comes across so clearly in your memoir, which is absolutely beautiful, um, is her utter clear-eyedness. And it feels like, you know, in the world where this subject seems to, if anything, have got worse, mm-hmm. you know, the debate around this subject in the time that she has been growing up and you have been going through this, if anything, the last decade has seen it become more of a powder keg, if you like. Mm-hmm. She comes across as very clear-sighted, as very, this is me. Right. What's your issue? Is that how she is or is that you with the benefit of hindsight? No, definitely. She was much more clear-sighted than we were because she was connected to herself and she knew herself. We were connected to the world and had already experienced all of our, you know, baggage. So, um, no, she was definitely the clear sighted one. Um, and we were lucky that way because, um, you know, with other kids, it's, it's not as clear sighted. There are a lot of kids who take up the middle space and, you know, who need more space to explore their gender. And honestly, she's, she's the most binary kid I have. (laughs) of, you know, upholding the binary. Um, She just did it in a flipped way. So um, yeah, and of course, it wasn't smooth sailing. And that's what the book is about is about this knock at the door that changed our lives. Mm -hmm. And certainly for her, you know, it's, it's been a in raising her, it's been a lot about when to protect her from some of the things that have already happened to her that she doesn't even really particularly know because we've guarded her, but um, but then also allowing her to know bit by bit, exposing the world to her, but hopefully uh, in a way that allows her to remain clear-eyed, you know, that doesn't overwhelm. So tell us a bit about that knock at the door, because that's a pivotal moment in your lives, in the book, but also it's like every parent's dread, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
So shortly after, you know, she transitioned, we, of course, had to tell people in, in the school um, in you know, friend groups, family and neighbors and, you know, just our whole community to let them know that, that this had happened. We, we were changing pronouns and this is the new name and da, da, da. What was the response to that in general? You know, the teachers and were people, res- you know, respectful um, of that or were they kind of horrified? Right. See, this is the this is the deep south. My husband's a New Englander um, and, you know, we're from the Northeast. And so we're in the deep South, but we're in this little progressive bubble that we really believed in. It, it broke. <laughs> it burst. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the school was fantastic because they had a non-discrimination policy and they, this gave them the opportunity to walk the walk. And um, so she was the first kid to go through this there. I know for a fact that since there have been, you know, many others, but they really, they, they wrote a letter of support. The whole entire faculty and staff signed that letter. And in it, they talk about their policy on being open and accepting to all people. Um, so they were great. You know, in general, we got a lot of support. I mean, even from the you know nuns and the priest who, who baptized our child and all that, we, we really did get an outpouring of love, even from Catholics. That, that did not remain true. <laughs> we did get some Catholic backlash. But the, the, obviously, the people we were close to were incredibly loving. Um, so there was a lot of support and some from places that we didn't expect, you know, people who were religious, right? And so in general, it was good. I think a lot of the bad was not said to our faces. And then not long after, you know, within a month, uh, there was a knock at the door. Um, and that turned out to be someone from the Department of Children and Families investigating us for child abuse, basically for supporting our uh, trans child. Um, and so uh, that sparked an investigation, um, you know, interviews and plans and, you know, talking with lawyers. It became clear very quickly that if a police officer comes back with the social worker the next day, we would lose custody. Our child is going with the police officer. Or if we had to go up against into a court system, we would probably hit a Republican appointed judge because of, of the history of the state we were living in. Mm-hmm. We could lose custody. So it was a terrifying uh, situation and um, that, yeah, it really, you know, changed uh, everything for, for our whole bit. It, we ended up um, eventually leaving um, the state and moving north again to try and find a place with laws that could um, protect our daughter. So did you um, have an inkling of who it was? Had Presumably somebody had reported you then. Yes. Well, that's also the thing. I never got to do the healing or the reconciliation or the explanation or the shot at, Mm. wait, let me bring you in. Let's have the conversation. Um, And it became a real paranoia for me. I didn't know. We were very nervous at school. Had it been one of the parents at the school, we didn't let the kids play in the front yard. We would pull the car into the garage. The kids would only play in the back. We, you know, who was it in the neighborhood? Was it someone who had a vendetta that was personal somehow? I mean, it, it was really, um, it tore at the fabric of, you know, of not just us too, the rest of our friends and family who had supported us were also very disturbed. So it was a community that kind of felt this fracture as well. So of course I have in the book, I, I go on and I do <laughs> investigative stuff on yeah. who I eventually believe made the call. And I still do not know 100%, but I do have my thoughts. And then of course, since I couldn't, you know, confront that person that way, I had to do this kind of 
forgiveness in absentia. You know, I had to kind of move through to a place where I could forgive her. So yeah, it's strange, but I needed that kind of closure. So even though I couldn't confront, I still had to go through the phases. Yeah, otherwise you'd go completely mad, wouldn't you? Yeah. One of the things that was really interesting to me was when the lawyer, when you'd had the knock on the door and this kind of seismic thing had happened. I mean, I'm paraphrasing wildly, but basically fight, you know, fight, oh, who who's going to take the blame for your child being transgender? It's like, are you going to take the blame? Is your husband going to take the blame? Can you blame the school? Can you find someone to blame? And it's yeah. almost like that, you know, all those things, you know, those senses of blame and shame and guilt, they all come rushing in. And it's like, if we can pin it on someone, it being this person, then it'll be fine. Yeah. Yes, because when somebody takes the blame... And if I were to have to go into a court, like it was literally one of you might be asked to leave the home. That might be one of the solutions here. You get to keep custody, but one of you has to take the blame and leave the home. And so you all, you two should think about who that should be it was just insane. Mm-hmm. But if you go into the court system and you perform your uh, shame and you perform fear and, and you perform all this stuff and shame and fear gets so messed and entwined together. Um, and you, and you say, I'm so sorry, we'll, it'll never happen again. I promise bubble. We'll, we'll put her in pants. We'll, you know, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll take it all back. Um, it, it, it reorders the patriarchy. And so everybody goes, Oh, okay. Okay. It's all, it's fine. Now. We're, back. Yeah. we're back. Okay. We, we punished the people. They said that they were sorry. It will never happen again because one of the things in our risk factors was that she had been born a boy and she was transitioning into a girl. And so that is something that our culture can't hold as a concept very easily. We understand why a girl would want to be a boy. That that upholds the patriarchy in a lot of ways. Because it's so much better. So much better. Right? And it says, hey, men are powerful. Um, not that it's easy for families of trans boys at all. But um, that little bit kind of makes sense sometimes to a culture. Whereas we were doing it the opposite way that felt like an attack to that order. So, uh, yeah. So if we could have performed that, done that, and then, you know, which we would have. I would have done that. You know, I mean, I would have figured out how to to bide our time, get out of the courts, keep our daughter, get out of the court system and move. You know, if that's what I would have had to have done, which is kind of a strange thing to look yourself in the eye and say, really? <laughs> like, you're not going to, are you a coward? You know, um, you're not going to stand up and fight in, in a way. And I mean, I never got to have to make that decision. But for the safety of my child, I think I would have performed and gotten out. And the court would have like to have you stand up and go, okay, this has happened because I'm a bad mother. That that would have been okay for the court because then they could go, okay, bad mother. We know what to do with bad mothers, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how that would have played out, but it it it's haunting. Oh, it's hideous. I mean, you you touched on privilege just now. So before we talk about your big move back to the northeast. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because very early on, you said something of, you know, like you're a successful writer and you know how to do research. And so you immediately plowed into those things, you know, and you started from a point of privilege, really, of going, okay, I know how to do research so I can find out about this and I can find out how to get help. And then you spoke to us, I think it was a solicitor, wasn't it? Who went through that list with you, which is a really fascinating list of like your yeah. risk factors and your privileges. Yes, it wasn't actually a lawyer. It was somebody on the national level who helped families with trans kids across the board. But one of her specialties, and maybe she was 
the leading specialist in the, in the country at the time, um, was a specific situation because it was not isolated incident. You know, this happened to, to families that had kids transition, that the school nurse might make a call or an angry aunt might make a call. You know, there's all these different people who might make the call. And so a lot of people were put in this position. So she said, I don't have time to be nice about this or to be polite. I'm going to run you through a list of questions and you just say, you know, yes or no, what applies to you? And the list was was terrifying in a way. Uh, so, so, you know, are you white? I got to say yes to that. Are you and your husband married? Yes. Are you heterosexual? Yes, both of us. Do you have money to pay for lawyers? Yes. What's your education level? Blah. You know, we mm-hmm. got to go down that list with every answer that I got to say yes to. I saw the family that did not get to say yes to that answer. I was haunted by those families who, you know, no, we're a lesbian couple. Um, no, my husband is black. Um, no, did any it, going down that list and seeing their risk go up because of not just the transphobia that started the whole problem or the lack of understanding at that point too uh, of what is it, what it is to be trans, but also these all these other deeply ingrained you know racism, sexism, homophobia, all these other things that really make some people's lives incredibly more difficult in our culture. You know what I mean? It's just Mm -hmm. they were at greater risk of losing their child to the court system. Do you think that maybe the original inspector who came to your house, you know, it makes me wonder whether that's why it didn't, one of the reasons it didn't go any further was simply because you were, this sounds terrible, but the right kind of people? I think a couple of things. I think just basically luck of the draw. The file falls on a desk. Who who's that desk? How did that person feel that day? And you know, it was it was his first time too. He had no idea what questions to ask. He has to interview each child alone. He knows how to ask about abuse, but he has no idea like what to ask a little girl. <laughs> you know, like he's mm-hmm. sitting there, he's just at a at a loss. So it was luck of the draw. You know, he did pull up to a house that, you know, had some money. You know, I mean, we weren't fabulously wealthy or, or not. Um, he certainly noticed that it was a house where the kids' art was on the wall. You know, there there's obviously space for the kids to play. Like, there was a, a certain home quality to it that felt to him like things that got written up. This is a good home, you know, a, a safe home. Uh, but, um, yeah, somebody else would have just um, come in and could have very much ratcheted up the situation. Yeah. And how did it, because your your other children were at this point, they, they had to be questioned, didn't they? How did this, is it a seven year gap between your third and fourth children? Is that right? Yeah. yeah and a 12 year gap between the oldest and the youngest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how were they impacted by it? Well, you know, my, my oldest daughter, you know, was 12 when the baby was born. And so this was her baby too, in a way she mm-hmm. has the kernel. There's no sibling rivalry at all, you know, cause the gap is too big. So it's really this sweet, sweet maternal relationship. It was very hard for her, hardest on her. I was also pregnant at the time with our fifth child. And, um, you know, I talk about that in the book, I ended up having a miscarriage. Um, and I believe that it had a lot to do with the stress of the situation is absolutely tied to the situation. Yeah, that, that was a, you know, it's like insult to injury, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, that, so that was very hard for the family, but especially hard for her. My oldest really took the miscarriage very hard in the whole thing. And also it leaked into her school life and there were rumors. And so she took definitely the hardest of all of us in a way. Yeah, so 
and then my other, my second kid is very funny. He's very, you know, that's his defense mechanism. He was hilarious with the interviewer. <laughs> um, he was dating a, a, a girl who had a far right Christian uh, family at the time. So there were complications there, but um, he's always the one like, look, she's going to be fine out of all of us. <laughs> the baby will be fine, you know? So he always builds me up in another way. And then the other kid was, was our third child, um, is a quieter kid. He's, you know, you know, he's a soccer player and like an athlete and is relatively quiet. And he was just so loving to his little sister in that interview. It was interesting to see him just, you know, for being so shy and quiet to be so quietly loving, um, especially as a kid who's so like kind of a, a bro, you know? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it, it, I think it definitely opened them up to a world. I'm so happy that they got, they've gotten to see somebody who's had to push more. I think it's definitely affected them when they're in different situations with all different kinds of, you know, diversity, minorities, and they, they see things differently. Once you see the system at work against somebody, it changes your understanding of the system. Did that experience with the knock, did that lead directly to the move? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. We, we would probably still live there if, if not for that. Yeah, and you've lived in a state which actually has become well. I'm I'm going to say worse because I think it's worse recently, hasn't it? Was it Texas? Is that okay to say? I don't want to. Um, well, I want to talk about Texas and Florida, if that's okay, <laughs> <laughs> because they've both been a nightmare. And I think it's important, especially for people in the UK and Europe, to to understand mm-hmm. that Texas is is home to 39 million people. And I think Florida is is close. To, I don't know what Florida is, but it's one of the four biggest uh, states in the um, entire country. So we're talking about country sized states here. Yeah. So Texas. Uh, so what happened to us felt at the time just like a bureaucratic accident. Like it, the idea was still so new. So few people understood what uh, you know there could be a child who is trans. And so we felt like, okay, if the education goes up, we'll, we'll be able to, this will stop happening. We'll be good. But in Texas in the last year, they made it the law. So what happened to us became law. If you know of a family who is supporting their trans child, if you are a doctor and you know of a family or a school nurse, and you know of a family that is supporting their trans child, you have to report them and they need to be investigated for child abuse. So horrifying, isn't it? And so when you moved north, presumably you were choosing between the states where you knew your daughter's rights would be protected at that point. Mm -hmm. How did that work out? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. Well, so we we went through this period of of growth and good. You know, there's the Obama administration was Mm -hmm. great. As Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was doing great things, uh, helping the passport system become easier for, for, I mean, there's all this great movement. And then, you know, Trump came into office and, and especially Mike Pence's agenda was really about, you know, going after trans uh, people and uh, anti-LGBTQ. So everything kind of, mm-hmm. there's this huge backlash. But at that point, and for the years that followed, um, the state that we moved to was right on the cusp of, um, and we were told it will definitely pass. So we went right before it passed, but protecting um, trans kids in K-12, kindergarten through uh, senior year of high school. So in in the public school system, they got all their rights and protections. And then these kinds of laws were even passing in Republican-led uh, states. Um, New Jersey had a Republican who signed them. Maryland had a Republican who signed the protections. And it was just 
looking like such positivity. Um, and then the backlash has been incredible. What's scary about it, it's very lockstep. Um, and now Florida with uh, Ron DeSantis, who will probably run for president, mm. um, is also, he's just putting in a lot of laws right now that are um, really aggressively targeting trans kids. Um, but yeah, 155 laws against, I think trans kids in particular were were pushed forward. They didn't all pass, but pushed forward in 2022. One just in Oklahoma bans trans care up until the age of 26 in the state. So it's a, it's a strange time. Yeah, it's, um, and I'm, I'm guessing that your daughter must be about 16 now, is she? I mean, I don't want to say it or do anything that infringes her privacy, yeah. so do say. No, no, yes, she's about to turn, yeah, 16. Mm-hmm. And so how how is it now? How is she now? Because when you moved there, she... I. I think the word you use in the book is stealth. I don't know what the right word is to use, but having been effectively out in Texas, would it be fair to say you went back in? Is that right? I'm sorry if it's the funny thing. Yeah, and in the and in the book, I never say what state it is, so uh, that we were in or that we moved to. But um, yeah, I think um, and stealth. I don't know how I feel about the word stealth. And I, and, you know, we talked a lot with her as a little girl about. Um, a secret versus what's private, you know, mm-hmm. um, because a secret feels so shameful. And we, we were so scared of our of our fear being misinterpreted by her as shame. And, and shame yeah. is, is, is such a, a hard legacy. And we just have seen so many people in the LGBTQ community, you know, as adults still struggling with that. So, Yes. So she really wanted to, well, we all thought, well, let's just, <laughs> let's just make it easy. We, we like, we'll, we'll have her go in just, you know, she's a girl, she'll go in as a girl and, mm. and you know, that's what it'll be. And then we did find, we felt we needed that community too. So we needed some really staunch advocates who'd have our back in case something went wrong. So we also built people who knew. And then she told a few friends, she would, she would choose here and there who she wanted to tell her private, you know, um, story to. So um, now, I mean, she's great. <laughs> I don't know. She's, you know, math is hard. And um, <laughs> and she got an, a, an award in French uh, last year that she was really excited about. And, um, you know, she's great. Um, she's thriving and she's delightful. Like she's just such a like, any, who, who do you want to go to dinner with? I want to go to dinner with her, you know. <laughs> like, so she's really in so many ways, like just such an easy child to raise. It's, it's kind of funny. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
And that decision for her is all about safety. You know, how does she feel safest? Um, she's not visibly trans. So no one, in fact, when we tell people that she is, when we have that conversation, they're totally baffled by, very confused. So that's another kind of privilege too, you know, mm. in the trans community that if you are visibly trans versus, you know, you're not. And so, so right now, no one in the school that she currently attends knows that she's trans in her previous school, a couple of kids, um, she just changed. So she's finding those friendships and deciding whether she'll have those conversations or not. I mean, I want her to to finally find a community and a world for herself where, um, you know, she really gets to be out. That used to be a lot easier in a way when you could control things online. And now with, mm. you know, the, you're, you're out, you're kind of out. Um, so oh, those are all conversations that, you know, we continue to have. Yeah, I'm sure. Because when I was thinking when I was, was reading the book was that, you know, puberty must be here. And that kind of, that shifts the balance again, doesn't it? Yes. And um, yeah, and I think that when it comes to trans kids, I, re I read this really interesting review. It was a review of a, a book called um, This Body I Wore by Diana Getch, who is a late transitioning um, trans woman, a, a writer, brilliant. She published a ton before this. And the review was also brilliant. The review really talked about a queer time, you know, and how things happen, you know, um, at, at different speeds. Speeds. And so, uh, you know, I think a lot of times with with trans kids, too, you don't see them necessarily always super interested in dating. I mean, some are, of course, you know, but others are just very aware that, you know, their time frame on everything's just going to be a little bit different. <laughs> so, yeah, her coming into this period in some ways is very different than my other kids. Um, yeah. But of course, you know, if she were, you know, any trans person who's, who's deciding to date, you know, they have to have those kinds of conversations, you know, and I think that's just so far off of her radar right now. Um, so it's interesting to see, um, yeah, to see how those things have to continue to be navigated. You, you don't just come out once, you kind of, you know, throughout your life and uh, coming out over and over. How, how has it been for you? Have you found it hard to get support? Have you found people around you? Yeah. I mean, there are, there used to be a great conference in Philadelphia that was in person for year after year. And so we kind of made some friends. Basically, we created cousins for my daughter. There are three other families in our little group. Our children were very similar in that they were very young and, and very persistent and consistent in their identities. So these families, we still stay in touch with, we get together every few months or, you know, and so she has these kind of cousins who sometimes she gets along with, sometimes she does, you know, it doesn't really matter, like you're in it with them. So um, that's been great. And my family and, and, and our friends and all of that have been really wonderful. You know, we, we tend to like people who are open and loving and, you know, compassionate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So it's been good. Yeah, I mean, I feel slightly conscious that I'm in many cases asking you questions I already know the answer to because I've read the book. But how was it telling the older generations of your family? Mm. Because that must have been quite daunting, was it? Actually, you know, because my parents lived through the 60s and 70s. So they weren't hippies. You know, my parents were not at all. They, you know, my father was, um, you know, kind of a corporate lawyer type, you know, but um, but he did yoga, you know, <laughs> So there was a, there was an openness. My father had also um, marched for civil rights, and so he was he immediately saw this as a civil rights issue, and he plugged it into his understanding of civil rights, and he just took it and went that way, and it was very clear to him. My mother took it spiritually, 
you know, and she really looked at um, her faith. She's Catholic. And for her, she found the footing that she needed. And honestly, she just kind of forgot, you know, that my, that there was any other child. She's like, I look at that child and that's my granddaughter. You know, it's so clear. My husband's family is a little bit more, um, you know, New, New Englanders are pretty uptight, you know, as a, as a group. So they kind of took it staunchly and said, absolutely, we will do what we are told. And we never really heard much about it. You know, they never checked in, never talked about it. Like it was just, you know, and forward. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was fine. I like, we'll take that over, you know, because it is really, really difficult for so many families. Uh, They lose, you know, um, connection sometimes with, with their own parents who just refuse to adapt and just won't do it. And therefore, they're going to choose their child's health and well-being over the relationship with their parent. And then sometimes they don't. Sometimes they really try to figure out ways to protect the child, but maintain the relationship. That is a really difficult conversation that comes up again and again when you're talking to families with trans kids. We've kind of touched on the transphobia that's been kind of growing. There's a huge amount of it here. And one of the things that struck me is I saw a conversation on Twitter where somebody was saying, you know, that in America, it's transphobia is more of a right wing thing. Whereas in the UK, it's, it's kind of, it's reached beyond those boundaries. And, you know, and there are a, a lot of feminists who are, well, some are on the fence, some are decidedly not on the fence and don't accept the womanhood of trans women. How has that, has that impacted you personally? Have you had friends who've held that view, ex-friends maybe? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the problems, the people on the fence are um, concerning to me because that concern trolling, you know, like I'm not transphobic, trans people are great. It's just that, you know, and start that sentence in any other way. People of color are great. I'm totally supportive. It's just that, well, you know, that it's just that, that probably made you a racist, right? Mm. (laughs) No one can do anything. It's just that, Okay, well, you know what? You probably are sexist, right? You're about to lean it. But for some reason, it's still okay to do that with trans people. Um, and so the people on the fence make me very, I'm, I'm, I, I'm nervous about them because they can go either way, right? And they can really pile on. In America, I'm always prepared for the punch that flies in from the far right. I've always got my, you know, shield up. And then mm-hmm. I totally have my flank down when it flies in from the far left. But I have found that you can always work with some, I, I just have better luck if I've worked with somebody who's open in any way. And I found that academics use intellect and argument to actually close the doors to their heart. And, and I can't get in. And the thing is, I don't know what the, you know, TERFs and, and other people are going to do with kids like mine. Tell me it, how, how in any way my daughter was not raised as a girl. She, she has no memory of she looks at her boy baby pictures and it's like oh wow but she went to school as a girl she didn't go to school as a trans girl she went to school as a girl she's very mm-hmm. much a feminist she's fighting i mean she's actually far more a feminist than she is a trans rights activist trans rights are kind of still kind of confusing and new to her but feminism she totally understands she can join into any conversation about being a little girl and being treated like she's sweet when actually she's tough and you know um mm-hmm the way she's been condescended to as a girl, like everything there. So I don't know what they're going to do with my generation because, you know, she has every right to be in those conversations. I think this feeling of, 
this concern that they have or this fear that they have for the women's spaces, you know, to me, I just want to look at them and say, everything's okay. It's totally fine. (laughs) If you could have elected and had a choice as to whether when I had my fourth child, it was a girl or a boy, no one in the world would have cared if my daughter had been born a girl. No one or a boy. Who cares? And then suddenly at this point, you have to freak out because, um, yes, so... So my daughter is banned from sports in the United States of America in 18 in 18 states in the in in America. She can't play high school sports and uh, hold. Um, she's terrible at sports. So <laughs> <laughs> the fear is that she's some you know great athlete because of course the patriarchy tells us that all men are better than women in you know sports. I mean she went into high school like me, tiny. You know, like her dad was also small. We were athletes, but mm-hmm. um, she was four foot ten and seventy five pounds and banned from sports in 18 states in the United States of America because uh, of her athletic (laughs) dominance, right? It's just ridiculous. Yes. So I think that I'm really very disappointed that feminists can't make space. And again, a small, we're talking about a small percentage of Mm -hmm. feminists space. Most can, but it goes back to the beginning of the movement for trans people. They're hearkening back to that first um, that first political debate they had and that feminists were really angry at men and really were threatened by by what they what they really believe is that trans people don't exist and that they are just men in in dresses trying to go into their spaces. What happened, at least in the United States, is that then AIDS came along and um, the community of AIDS brought everyone together in trauma. And um, the people who were hit the hardest by the AIDS epidemic early on were trans women, primarily sex workers. Um, And so you know, feminists came in, women came in, and and really a lot of them did great work and and dedicated themselves, you know, gay men and also trans women in that crisis. And a lot of money flooded in to help those resources. And so in trauma, we all, you know, there was bonding there. And then this new vitriol and anger and hostility, first of all, it just doesn't make sense for the new generation of trans girls and women who 100% don't even know what male privilege is, have never experienced male privilege. So it doesn't really make sense. But yeah, people are going to have to get their act together. Um, But the main thing that helps them get their act together is seeing these kids and meeting them and just realizing, oh, yeah, they're just kids. Like, they're great. (laughs) Nothing to fear. Yeah, and it's about them. It's not about you. And I think that's the, I don't mean you, I mean you won, you know. Like, I think that's one of the things that struck me again and again, right from your daughter's little friend when she was five through to people you speak to now. It immediately becomes about, well, how how does this impact me? What does this mean for me? It's not a conversation about your daughter's rights. It's about their rights. Right. Yeah. And that's been the, the history of certainly all, all civil rights um, when there's a majority, you know, I, I can at least I can speak for in the U.S., you know, you know, desegregation and bringing, you know, the, you know, having interracial schools and all of that was really about how is this going to affect my white son, you know, <laughs> my white daughter, you know, the white community could never see oh, what are the benefits to the black community. And then it, once it's a benefit to the black community, how that benefits all of us. And that's the thing, too, that I feel so strongly is that my daughter makes every room she's in a, a brighter, smarter, better, funnier, more creative room. You want her in the room with you. So <laughs> um, you can close the door if you want to. But again, 
then that's your loss. And it, at a certain point, it just becomes really just weird and quirky, just a weird, quirky thing that you think that my daughter doesn't deserve to be there. It just doesn't make sense. How has it affected your own feminism? Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Interesting, because, you know, I really thought of, you know, things like high heels and makeup and all of that as being thrust upon me, you know, Mm, gender is a social social construct. That was so helpful to me in in college, like that, that understanding that, oh my gosh, it's not just me for some reason, I love to be feminine. It's, It's all about, you know, the patriarchy and this being imposed upon me. And I loved it. You know, it was so liberating. And I totally understand why people want to hold on to that and want to apply it to trans people. But of course, gender identity isn't just, it isn't that. It isn't the social construct. Gender identity is how you wake up in the morning when no one's around and you're completely just groggy waking up and that you know your gender, you know, deeply, a deeply held core belief. And then my first daughter was very much a tree climber and an athlete and, you know, like me, rough and tough and, you know, playful uh, in that way. But then to have a daughter who made the high heels out of the Thomas the Train Bridge and (laughs) one of her first expressions was smoky eye. She would say mokey eye. Um, And so it's really in in seeing her, um, you know, express what seems to me like just extreme feminism, but um, and but with no interest in, you know, the patriarchy, no interest in men, no interest in boys or, you know, anything like that. It, it, It to me is like, oh, this is someone expressing art. Her her gender expression is coming from, again, such a pure place of like, you know, um, yeah, of, of her sense of beauty and her sense of wonder. And, you know, and she makes her own dresses and she's very interested in fashion. And um, and so seeing all of that really, it opened me up to, to understanding the spectrum and, and understanding that you can be a feminist, really hardcore feminist, and just be in stilettos, you know, mm. <laughs> and full hair and makeup, which had never really dawned on me before. I was so limited. So anyway, it's, she's ex- expanded my understanding of feminism. We started off talking about authenticity. I mean, what do you think, what has she taught you about authenticity? Yes. Um, yeah, to see someone, you know, just fight, you know, for her right to, to, to live an authentic life, to pursue happiness, which is, you know, um, part of our rights as, as Americans, it's built into our system, um, her right to pursue happiness, and then to claim it day after day, just joy, 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 you know, has really, you know, shifted in me. I mean, the whole journey kind of broke me open, you know, swung the doors of my heart wide open. And same with my husband. I mean, he would say, yeah, I was starting to get really good at golf. I was thinking, yeah, I'm I'm going to wind this down and just, and instead, you know, he's gotten to go on this journey where he's, you know, figured out his own sense of who he is in the world. And again, it's not about them. It's about you. And, um, and then, you know, the beauty and peace and power that comes with that, you know, I think that's really threatening to people. That is really threatening to people to say, I don't care about all the structures. I'm going to be who I am. There's a St. Francis de Sales uh, has a a quote, be who you are and be that well, you know, and I Mm -hmm. love that. And so I think that our whole family and those who have been privileged enough to be in, in, in rooms with her, um, really gets to see that in action, be who you are and be that well. And this is a kind of insanely huge question, really. I'm guessing you must be in your kind of early 50s now. How has this journey, how has it shaped you now? 
It is a huge question. And the shift, we, we could talk about the shift as well yeah. <laughs> in my body and how I'm changing and all of that. Um, it is really interesting to think about, you know, the, our physical bodies too and how they change over time and how I have, I think, because I've been broken open in this way and, and been able to see more people more holy for who they are and more holy for what might be going on with them because of the way the world takes shape around them, maybe with more hostility. I think it's made me gentler. I don't know whether I would have become gentler anyway, perhaps, but it was very strange that one of my go-to emotions is anger. You know, I feel injustice with anger. And because of the situation I was put in after the knock at the door, I didn't feel like I was allowed to be angry because it was not useful in the situation and everything had to be useful. And then not practicing anger as a response, because I felt like it was blocked for me, um, made me work on all these other skills and forced me to work on things like compassion and forgiveness and really figuring out, you know, who's really to blame here, you know, like structurally. So I think that where I am now is a little bit gentler than where I was um, when all of this started. And and you mentioned the kind of change, the shift in our bodies when and our minds when we enter this age. Where are you at with that? I mean, really, really personal. Should I be really personal? Go for it. <laughs> I'm almost there. I've thought I was almost there many times though, but I still have like if I can make it to summer without a period, then I will be fully menopausal. So that's my <laughs> very <laughs> intimate answer to that question. Yeah. But um, I think it, I am very interested in, I mean, I love the brain. You know what I mean? You saw mm. in the book, brain research yeah. is fascinating to me. Hormones, it, the way that they inform uh, the baby in utero, all of that's fascinating to me. So it is very interesting to me. And I've just started to, you know, just begin the research, honestly, on what happens to our bodies in aging, but also what happens to our bodies hormonally as we as we change into this age. And I have a lot of positivity about it, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I think that there's, well, there's first of all, so much more research and it's getting more interesting. But yeah, I'm, I think weirdly optimistic, maybe culturally, counterculturally, because our <laughs> culture tells us not to be, but- oh, okay. Culture is wrong. Yeah, culture is wrong. Yeah. Right. I'm just going to ask you the questions I always ask. What's your emotional age? I think it's probably, it's often around 22. I mean, it, sometimes in a weird way, 22, that used to be my answer. I, I think it's shifting because of my thing, but at 22 and maybe eighth grade, those were two eras for me where I was um, very focused incredibly focused. Eighth grade, um, just, yeah, I was not kind of caught up in all of the mishigas of, you know, men and dating, you know what I mean? Like all the mess of it. And it was so close. I very much knew who I was. And I would say again, at like 22, I had a very crystallized idea of who I was. And then I feel like I've just been so overrun for many years with work, you know, the work of raising a family, the work of being the breadwinner, all of that. And now I can feel that a sense of confidence, of quiet confidence returning, of clarity, you know, of who I am. So I don't know if that makes sense. And if that's my interpretation of your question is correct. Yeah, it makes total sense. And I suppose for me, I'm thinking that might be 22 or it might be 52. Right. I mean, it might be like a reaching a point of all of that kind of hopefully that maelstrom has calmed down and this is who I am. Maybe. Yes, I like that. Um, can you give us a book recommendation? So it can be something that's been hugely significant, or it can just be something you read recently that you loved. Yes, we had a book um, by Diana Getch 
um, this body I wore. It's gotten on a lot of best of lists end of the year. It came out last year. It's really like a love letter to New York City in some ways. Um, but also it's about a woman, um, a teacher, a poet, um, a creative who transitions late. So um, she's a little bit older than I am, but I just love the book because it really, again, I, I think that sometimes the cultures, the young who are getting all the privilege of all new new tech to science and those who transition later, but just one generation before, I'm fascinated in bridging the gap and paying homage to all of the work that the previous generation did in civil rights and LGBTQ civil rights. Um, but also just, I love her story. I love her voice. And she's just a great writer. I'm going to investigate that, see if it's published here. What advice would you give younger women? Or would you? <laughs> I love advice. I, I love to give advice. I love to get advice. Um, one of the things that I that they say about women, and I don't know whether they, in the UK this is prevalent, but they'll say, women will say themselves, I don't want advice. I just want you to listen. I just want to vent. And um, I think that I, I, I don't want just to vent. I want to vent and then I want you to give me your take, you know, I'm always interested. Um, but, you know, but again, it has to be, but that listening period is so important, you know, because if you're not listened to, then the advice just says, fix it, fix it, stop, stop talking and fix it. And that's not helpful. So I am wary of giving advice without knowing someone's very specific situation. Um, because one person I might say, you need to, to go harder. And the other one, you might say, you need to forgive yourself and take a beat, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, so it is tricky. Um, yeah. So, but I, I, um, you know, I mean, I, I think I, my wish for them is those moments of clarity, knowing who they are, figuring that out, be who you are and be that well, because it includes like accepting who you are, you know, really knowing who you are, but accepting who you are. So, and then being that well. Brilliant. Um, give us an older woman who inspires you. Oh, well, my mother is still alive. Um, and well, my father too, they're, they're both, he dances every day. Um, they're in their late eighties, mid, mid to late eighties. And my mother is an a, a, amazing, um, very funny woman. She uses a, a comedy to, to diffuse situations, which I find incredibly and powerful. Um, and, um, yeah, I think that her connectivity to people and how it keeps her alive like that she just is connected to each one of her grandchildren. She has their work schedules and class schedules in her brain. Like she knows where everybody is at any given time, which is fascinating memory-wise. Wow. And also her love for story and the idea that she really hoards stories. She loves stories so much, you know, gossip and whatever, but you know, like mm -hmm. story. Um, and she holds them all in her brain so clearly. And I think that she taught me to believe that the power of story to to change people, to, sh to change their minds, to open them up, you know, to entertain them, but also while you're entertaining them, <laughs> to, to have them experience change or healing or just that stories are powerful. So um, I think that, yeah, she's someone who's important to me. Brilliant. What's your superpower? Getting over it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the book feels like maybe not getting over it because I had to go back through, but I really do. It's very strange to my husband because he came from a family where once somebody apologized, that gave you the opportunity to really lean in on them because it showed their weakness so you could really attack them yeah. you know, <laughs> once they apologized. And he was very confused when I was like, oh, yeah, no problem. It's, it's OK. It's fine. It's great. After he apologized, he was baffled that it really left me like it would leave my body. And I'd be like, no, I'm good now. We're good. 
it's so confusing to him. So I didn't think about it as a superpower until, you know, now many, many, many you know, decades ago um, when we got together. But when I forgive somebody, truly forgive them, it does, it really leaves me, leaves my body. So, and, and that is incredible because it opens up space to go forward. So for me, that's been a superpower. Do you think you'll ever be able to forgive the caller? Yes. Already done. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could do it in person. Could I do it completely? If I got the chance to meet her in person, could I do it completely cleanly? That's the question. Or would I want to go back and rehash? <laughs> um, yeah, and another thing. Yeah. Another thing. Yeah. Would I really? But I think I could. I really do. I really think I could. So um, yes, I mean, I do. That's the thing about forgiveness too. Sometimes it's it's not just a one and done, especially if it's someone in your family, you have to continue to forgive them. Last one. How many fucks do you give? Well, my um, New Year's resolution almost every year for the last 10, 12 years um, was to have more fuck it. It was just like, have more fuck it, you know? <laughs> and um, last in December, I um, was in a meeting and I was I gave zero fucks in this meeting. And after I got out of the meeting, I thought, maybe I don't need to make the New Year's resolution anymore. <laughs> maybe I could just tone it down a little bit. Um, but um, yeah, I was always somebody who could kind of say fuck it. But I think it's really important to do that more and more. And in, in, in order, if you're going to be who you are and be it well, you got to say fuck it. That's great. Thank you so much, Carolyn. And thank you for giving me so much time. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash The Shift. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 